0: Good Morning everyone. Oh my word. I taught I taught twelve year olds for a long time. Come on. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, hey, what's there? Oh, yeah. Anyway, we were we were there and then it was gone. Um, a couple housekeeping things not related to preaching before we get started. First off, I'm so glad I chickened out last week. Just Jesse is really gifted for leading kids worship. And it's wonderful. It is one of my favorite things in the world, just seeing that like, delightfully curmudgeoning face like breaking into a beaming smile because he's <laughs> in his worship. I just, it, it, big, fa- big fan of that. Um, and thank you to all of you. I, I grew up running around the feet of a lot of church spaces, and I was really fortunate and blessed to be in church spaces that were really happy to have me running around those feet. And it makes a difference because the kids are listening, and you know they see the way you worship, not just in the songs that you like, but also in the songs that they like. And it, it makes an impact down the road because it's like, there's a space for them too. So in the spirit of accessibility, thank you for making space for the kids. Um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> to those of you immediately panicking because you're like, I have not shopped for anything. Uh, I say that because we're going through an Advent series in September and October at the moment. Uh, the heart behind this was, it was the brainchild of, of Jim and Rachel to really take our time and to hear the story of, of Jesus' arrival with fresh ears, without the pressure of the holiday season, without all of those demands that come family and friends and events and everything just to be really able to hear um, oh, yeah, this is, this is a good story about a good king who came for us. And we're here, it's Christmas. Jesus is being born today in the story. So for some of you, this isn't surprising because all these special by section has been an explosion of Christmas things for about a month now, so it's kind of overdue. But I just wanna encourage you as we press into this passage to let yourself hear the Christmas story outside of all the things that define the Christmas story for you. Because we bring a lot of baggage to Christmas, at least I do. As much as it's a reminder of peace and goodwill and grace and salvation, sometimes it's also a reminder of events and relationships and difficulties that are still very, very challenging. And so we get the gift of just hearing about Jesus' birth separate from those things and those reminders. So I to encourage everybody, let yourself hear it with fresh ears. Let the Spirit speak to you. I feel like today it wants, it, God wants to kind of do a prophetic thing to speak through the passage. So as much as possible, I'm gonna try and be sensitive to what the Spirit is saying. Now, the gift of that is hopefully God speaks and he moves, but it does mean because I am human and flawed, I may in sharing say something that I don't fully explain or you're like, what did he mean by that? The intention is to honor God. If you hear something that's confusing, please let's have a conversation about it. Come talk to me. Did you mean to say that? Nope, probably not. We're trying to hear the Spirit and share that at the same time in real time with all of you and your delightful faces. So please, please, please don't you know immediately walk away and go, that guy doesn't know anything about Jesus. It's just the intention the heart's good. So in this passage, we're going to be talking about glory. I love that Jesse spontaneously broke into that song because we're going to be talking a lot about glory today. Um... You're gonna hear about someone trying to prove that they're glorious, you're going to see someone reflecting on what glory means, and you're going to see glory itself in a person. So think about glory as I read through this text. Luke 2 says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So we've, we've been going through Luke for a, a while. It has been a slow and patient and deliberate walk. And as we've done this again and again, this story has been odd, strange, bizarre. This is supposedly the story of a king, and yet it is a continual, repetitive story of unimportant people in unimportant places being highlighted by God is very important. If you're listening with your cultural ears for the day, you're hearing these moments and these stories and thinking, why Why? why this, this woman past her prime? Why this, this teenage girl who lives in a nowhere town in the middle of a nowhere home? Why, why this deaf and mute priest? Why these people? So as it's been going along, it's been anything but what you would expect of something glorious. Because the word glory in in kind of the biblical languages means a lot of things. It can mean brilliance, it can mean splendor, it can mean value because it's weighty, it can mean value because it's worthy of honor and esteem. And, And with all of those things together, we can kind of broadly say that glory connects to immense worth immense brilliance, immense splendor. But this has not been a story that culturally strikes us as immensely brilliant or worthy. These are the less than brilliant ones. These are the less than glorious ones. These are the less than worthy ones, at least as society knows them. And then again and again and again, that's where heaven is showing up and speaking. But finally, it seems like Luke has kind of regained the plot because here's Caesar. Here's an emperor. Here's the Roman king. And finally, we get some real glory in the story, at least so we think. We have the first emperor of Rome, the son of Julius Caesar, or the adopted son, who really established an age of brilliance for Rome. He ushered in a series of reforms that brought lasting peace to the Roman Empire. He was successful in military conquest. He was one who claimed divine status because fortunately Halley's Comet flew over Rome shortly after he became the ruler of the Roman Republic, or the Roman Empire, and he pointed at that comet and said, look, that is the spirit of Julius Caesar ascending to heaven, and if he is divine and I am his adopted son, then I am the son of a God, and they worshiped him. And they developed the imperial cult as if to say, this is one worthy of worship. So Luke shows us Caesar, and Caesar checks every box for what makes things glorious. Every single one. It's like Luke finally figured out what a story about a king should sound like. Because up to this point, this fairy tale is a little rough. You know, Caesar, in in his own words, was an emperor, was divine, was the bringer of peace, was a savior of his people, was the Lord. And he validated that with signs of his glory a glittering kingdom. Vast territories, new citizens, monies and resources, temples built to show how glorious he was. In short, Caesar had power. And that power made him, in his opinion, in the opinions of Rome, a god. So Luke finally gives us a king. Check. Sounds like a king, talks like a king, does very kingly things snaps his fingers and the world moves, says go to your town to be registered that you can be taxed and counted, that I can show to everyone how much power and might I have and I can gain more resources for this empire. And then, Luke being the Luke that he is, spends the rest of the passage subverting the very idea of glory, kingdom, king, savior, peace bringer, lord. By the end of this passage, you're pretty convinced that Caesar isn't what he thinks he is. And he's definitely not what he claims to be. Because very quickly, Luke turns to this couple. See, Joseph, it says, is a descendant of David, the lost king, not lost in the sense that we don't know where he was, but the the kingdom that was broken and that fell, the brilliant king of Israel who couldn't succeed, but the one that looms large in the memory of God's people, as one who is anointed by God. Here is his descendant, not so glorious, having to load up his wife into a caravan on the eve of the birth of their child and walk for four days to give birth because they were commanded to by the glorious king of Rome. This is a moment of, oh, how the mighty have fallen, because suddenly the line of David responds to the whims of Rome. And he's with Mary, who is a virgin, who is young, who is from a poor family in a poor town, in a poor neighborhood. And there they are together, being commanded by Rome to move. And they are. I mean, this shows how stark of a difference there is between the glory of Rome and this couple. And they have a baby. And and where does this descendant of David Where is he born? He's born into a manger, into a trough, in a place you would feed the animals. We've gone so quickly from glory to seemingly the opposite. Jesus seems to be everything that Caesar is not. He has nothing to validate his glory until heaven shows up. And the angels call him Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And Messiah is a word that encapsulates all of God's promises to save the world. That the Messiah would be the shepherd of God's people, that he would rule with justice, that he would be the bringer of peace, that he would be the one that saves, that he would be the Lord that rules. So there in a manger, in a baby is supposedly the true Savior, the true Lord, the true Son of God. If you know anything about kings, this seems unlikely. But God, you promised us a king and a ruler and a Savior and a Lord. We were thinking much closer to Augustus than we were to a baby. No offense, but babies don't do much. In fact, they cause more work for most of us than they do. This is a true statement. But in a baby, heaven declares that the Messiah has come, that the true king is there in all his vulnerability and all his innocence and all his frailty. This, This wasn't an age where having a baby was a delightfully easy process filled with modern medical marvels. It was a time where having a child was a terribly fraught experience filled with dangers, and yet, this is the Messiah supposedly taking on more vulnerability than anyone could know. And about this baby, the angels announce that the Son of God has come. And who do they announce it to? Because he's a king, right? If he's truly the king, surely they announce it to the best and the brightest, the most glorious, the most brilliant. No, they announce it in the middle of the night in a field to shepherds with nothing, most likely no social status, no importance, this is an odd way to announce that a new kingdom has arrived. <laughs> Luke seems to be reverting back to all the things that we've done so far. Like, why, why is glory with all of these, these unimportant, marginalized, down and out ones? Why is God so obsessed with announcing his kingdom in these places? If if Israel needs a savior from Rome, it might be nice if that savior was as strong as Rome, and yet. We're supposed to face the emperor of a kingdom with a baby. But somehow this all brings glory to God because the angels say glory to God in the highest and, to on, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That line is a notoriously tricky line and I am really ill-equipped to interpret it. I am not good enough. I am not a good enough student. I don't know enough. Rough. Thank God we have phones and friends. So I called my favorite theologian, Sarah Shin, and my, my new favorite biblical scholar, Tessa, who goes to church here now. You should meet her if you get a chance. But literally, I, I just talked to them, and I was like, what, what's going on here? And from both of them, it was really helpful. Like, Tessa highlighted how inclusive of a declaration this is, that there's favor on earth to humanity, to men and women. That it's not just, you know, sometimes you'll hear it goodwill towards men, but it's really people. And Sarah highlighted for me that in this announcement, the angels are communicating God's unmerited favor and love to humanity, that we did nothing, and yet God gave us more than we could ever ask for, more than we could ever need, more than we could ever require in this baby. That's not a direct translation of the wording, but it's an understanding of the angels' announcement in light of Luke and Isaiah and Ephesians. The angels are praising the God who blesses the word world with someone they don't deserve. So the Savior we need, the Lord we need, the peace bringer we need, it's the baby. Now we hear about this every Christmas and as Christians it's really easy to be like, yeah, because he's Jesus. But imagine hearing this for the first time. Imagine someone sitting you down and you've never heard this story before and saying, let me tell you how all the evil in the world is overcome and all the problems of the world are overcome and all the difficulties of the world are overcome and everything that's wrong and broken and how death is conquered. Step one, get a baby. (laughs) Sorry, I thought you said baby. Yep. Step one, baby. But here's the thing. The baby is God. Wait, why is God a baby? And I have to say that because we hear this story over and over again. We're like, yes, 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 Jesus came to earth and he was a baby. Jesus is the son of God and he became a baby. He had all the power in the universe as the son of God and he became a baby. People lay down their power and privilege, but none in human history do it like this. And as this announcement is made, it's made to shepherds who have nothing, who are nothing, who are overlooked and thought less of. And those are the first evangelists. And that term is just a Greek word that says good news bringers, which you would have in Rome. You'd have messengers who would say, look at the mighty conquests and the good news of this this empire. But instead of glittering glorious heralds, it's blue collar shepherds that no one wants to talk to. This is not how people expect to hear the dawn of a new kingdom. These messengers are far from glorious. This birth is far from glorious. It's such a strange event, and it's so on brand for this book. And if we just hear all this, as people have heard it too many times, we're like, yeah, 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 in excelsis we forget the fact that this moment tells us so much about what God wants us to be as Christians if it's all very familiar that a baby was born in a manger that was the son of God who came to save, we forget that that very thing is meant to tell us what it means to become like Jesus. What type of savior arrives without power? What type of chosen one only gets a manger for a bed? What type of king comes so vulnerably that the emperor of Rome can disrupt his entire life? This has to challenge us and say that the salvation that comes in Jesus is a very different type of saving than anyone expected, that the glory that this baby has is different than any human glory we have ever known, and this king will wield power in ways that no other king has, and it should mark us as readers of this passage and as Christians to begin to expect the unexpected. As Christians, if we expect our Christianity, our kingdom, our church, our family to look like the kingdoms and the manner and the culture of the world, we've immediately lost something because we are the crazy ones who have the faith to believe that God came to earth as a baby and that that type of vulnerability really matters. So I said in the beginning that this passage begins and ends with with someone counting glory. Caesar starts by counting the glory of his empire. Everyone, go to your hometown to be counted so you can be taxed. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at all the territories I've made. And there is Mary, vulnerable, poor, humble, also counting glory. It says in the passage she treasured up all these things in her heart. So what's she treasuring? What is is she pondering? Is she pondering how impressive Caesar is? Or is she asking herself, what is this story that I'm part of, where God tells me I'm the mother of the Lord through an angel, and then my whole life is thrown into disarray as the Roman emperor tells me to move, and my my child, who's the Messiah, is born in a manger, and now angels are announcing things to shepherds, and the shepherds are just bursting in to our delivery room to say, this is the Messiah, and I'm like, I know, but you came unannounced, and why? Mary is my favorite witness in the Gospels because she doesn't miss things. And she gets who Jesus is really early, much earlier than most other people. And it's probably because when he was a baby, she paid attention. Because there's something about the kingdom that pays attention to vulnerable places and unimportant things and expects the Spirit to show up, expects God to show up in the very place that no one else would. And all this speaks to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus' good kingdom. We've been preaching the gospel all year, and it kind of hit me when I did this, because we started in Daniel, which is a great gospel book. And I mean that, because the whole book of Daniel is filled with promises of the kingdom that is coming. In fact, in, in February... Uh, Sarah, again, actually preached on the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that a statue of gold and bronze and silver with feet of iron and clay is struck by a rock that shatters the statue, and then the rock becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth, a sign of God's coming kingdom. What a sign of power. Who is that rock? It's a baby so innocent and so vulnerable that it can hardly lift a finger. And that is the rock that will become the mountain that fills the earth, that brings about the kingdom of God's promises and good pleasure. The fact that the rock is a baby is really good news for us. The fact that the baby is, well, is vulnerable and innocent is really good news to us because it's, it's a sign that God took on every part of human life to redeem it and to restore it from the very most vulnerable beginnings that God said that the good kingdom is not about me being stronger than Rome by fighting with Rome's methods, but instead it's about a kingdom of sacrifice and vulnerability where my power is made perfect in weakness. It's crazy, Augustus himself at the end of his life said, "'I found Rome a city of bricks,' or clay, "'and left her as marble. Literally in his own words announced, by the way, if you're not paying attention to the story, we're the feet of clay. All of this marble, all of this accomplishment, we're the feet of clay. Jesus is the rock and he's the rock from the first breath that he cries as a baby in his mother's arms. So if we've been paying attention to this whole thing, this is a weird type of glory. Is it brilliance? Is it splendor? Sure, there's angels, but is a baby brilliant and glorious and weighty and important? Is is a vulnerable couple important and glorious? Are shepherds glorious? Yes. If we see glory the way that God does in the economy of his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, Now, the, the Lord is the Spirit, And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. To unpack that, we have been blessed to be part of the kingdom that it was inaugurated with the birth of a baby and we became glorious when we're transformed to be like the one who would be that innocent and that vulnerable, who would lay down that much for us. Philippians 2 said Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be exploited, but he gave it up for us. That's really good news because the human cycle of power is broken not with a better version of human power or order but with vulnerability with self-emptying with sacrifice with surrender with a willingness to say i won't exploit my privilege but i'll give it all away for those that i love the gospel starts with a baby when we realize that we have, enough, we have just as much to learn from Jesus the baby as we do from Jesus the teacher, we start to remember that this was not some weird side road on the way to the coming kingdom, but this was the kingdom itself breaking in. And that we are people who are meant to be that vulnerable and that innocent and that trusting that we would empty ourselves of all of our power and privilege and status if that's what the Lord has called us to to give his love to the world. It's not human glory, but the glory of becoming like one who did all that for us. It's not what Caesar counts as glory, temples and resources and power and accomplishments, but what Mary treasured as glory, a kingdom who comes to the marginalized and the outcast and the down and outs and the broken, and it comes not with the show of human power, but with vulnerability. So the question is, Twofold. do we want Caesar, or do we want the baby? I mean, human history continues to offer us Caesars who claim a reign of peace by their powerful accomplishments, one after another after another, sometimes so quickly your head spins, and the promise is always the same. I have what others didn't. I can establish peace that no one else can, can. but thousands and thousands of years of recorded history point To the opposite, that human kingdoms fail, and even when they succeed, they usually succeed on the backs of the vulnerable, breaking them as they run over them with their vision of order. Only Jesus is the king who says, I will break this cycle of evil and exploitation and dominance by suffering under it myself, by being vulnerable myself. Do we want to be one who's so accomplished in human power that he can offer a frail kingdom that will pass? Or do we want to be one like Jesus who's willing to be frail so that God's power would rest on us and his kingdom would come? So that's the twofold. Do we want Caesar or Jesus? Do we want to be like Caesar or like Jesus? It is so easy to want Caesar or want to be like Caesar. It's easy to want Caesar because we can face all of the challenges of life And if you haven't faced any challenges yet, they're coming because life is challenging. And when we face them, do we want a way out that's built on human power that may work for a season or a moment or a lifetime but comes with terrible consequences or the cost of the vulnerable? Or do we want to trust God who is the only king who ever finished what he started, who is the only king whose kingdom will not fail, Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? God laughs at this and says, you're blessed if you trust me. Not any human kingdom, not any human empire, not any human rule. It's easy to want to be like Caesar in our insecurities and our doubts. It's attractive. Yeah, a kingdom of marble. Sounds great. Resources. I could probably do pretty good with that. And and this is the prophetic message. I, I wasn't going to share this, but this is where it gets prophetic and slightly wonky, probably. But I felt drawn to watch the first Captain America movie and I don't really like Marvel movies so it was a weird thing, it just kept going, and I was like, why am I supposed to watch the Captain America movie? But in that movie, the, the whole idea, the crux of the argument is power always fails, so we need someone powerless who won't abuse power and then we give them power and then we finally have someone who uses power well. That's the Captain America story. I'm sorry if I ruined it for you. It came out like 20 years ago. I mean, my, my word, I was a child still. That's, this is ancient. But... The crux of that message is it's not power that's the problem, it's abuse of power. So let's just find someone who won't abuse power. As if history is not filled with endless examples of people we thought wouldn't abuse power and then found out later, oh, they were abusing power too. Being a Christian doesn't keep you from abusing power, being saved doesn't keep you from abusing power, being in a church none of these things keep you from that because we're human. The only person who's never abused power is God, is Jesus. And until we break that lie in our minds that says the answer to my problems is power, if I use it right, we will become the Caesars that roll over the innocent unintentionally and we'll find it out later. Even if we don't do it on purpose, someone's got to pay. Someone pays for power. Unless it's the power of the kind that God's kingdom offers, which is the power to heal and the power to reconcile and the power to be humble and the power to be faithful and the power to be loving and the power to wash feet and the power to sit with the broken and the power to pray for those who are hurting and the power to be friends to those that no one else will be and the power to love our enemies, unless that's the power we're talking about, it always comes with a cost. And I think what this message has to tell us is, if you're paying attention, it all starts with the most radical vulnerability of giving it up at all. Of saying, okay, fine, God, not my own power, not my own strength, not my own accomplishments, not my own empire, but yours. And then from that point, starting to look for all the places that God is going to show up, which is usually not in Caesar's house, but in a field in the middle of the night in the home of the poor and the broken, to those who are desperate and crying out, God help me in my weakness. We stop being Caesar when we stop looking at accomplishments and start looking for the Marys of this world and the shepherds of this world and the Elizabeths of this world and saying, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you gonna do here? Because this is the exact place you show up. And it starts when we start saying, okay, I've got a rash of problems, so I'm weak but I trust you. So if you're telling me the answer right now is not to fix them, I'll follow you even if you tell me the answer to all my problems is to help someone else with theirs? To see them blessed? These are the invitations I think there are for ministry today. Number one, I don't take light of the fact that we all need peace. Caesar promised it. said, mine is the reign of peace. Mine is the kingdom of peace. I can offer you peace. Guess what? Rome's not around anymore. Shocking, I know. Some of you may be like, what, Augustus failed? He seemed so promising. <laughs> but some of you very legitimately need peace. There are reasons why we run to empire, because it protects and it can offer help. If the, the word peace in the Bible means everything in its right place, wholeness, perfection, to be, to be full and, and, and placed where you're supposed to be. If you are not there, if you are unsettled or broken or challenged in a hard place and you need God's peace we want to pray for you. Please come up, and we want to pray that the presence of God, the peace that passes understanding, would guard your heart and mind, give you a path forward, help you to know how to move forward. Your situation matters deeply to God. He showed up in the life of a family without peace to bring peace to the earth. He'll show up in yours. Number two, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A lot of times we choose Caesar because we want to weigh out of the threats and the bondage and the difficulty and the challenges. We feel trapped and locked up. If you need freedom today, whether it's healing, whether it's deliverance, whether it's getting out of a situation that you don't know how to get out of, whether it's from yourself, the Spirit is here. The Spirit is moving. As I'm saying this, I, I, I'm not saying this figuratively. I believe that the Spirit is present to heal and to deliver and to help this morning, if you need prayer, come get prayer. Let the Spirit move. And the last thing is, is this 2 Corinthians 3 is like a mini gospel, it's mini good news. The story of God is that despite the repeated and insistent failures of every kingdom on the earth, including the ones that He assigned importance. He never gave up on humanity. And when evil and wickedness and violence continued to hold sway, he took on that problem on his own body. He gave himself to die for us, that we would be set free into a kingdom no longer defined by human power or human striving or human conspiracy or human plotting, but instead that we'd be free to live vulnerable, trusting that where we are weak, God is strong. If you want to be serious about that type of life, and I don't mean this as a self-righteousness, if you're like, you know what, I really, really do need a life with Jesus, where I follow this King who would be a baby, where I, I try to live in this kingdom that's not built on human power, where I'm part of this family where the outcasts are indispensable. Talk to, talk to someone who's on staff here. Come get prayer. There's all these pamphlets downstairs that talk about what it's like to be a part of a church and a family. Join a small group. You don't have to do it alone. It's not some isolated individual task where you just are like, okay, I'll try to figure out Jesus in my own heart. You get to do it in a group, in a family that's messy and broken and vulnerable where we all come together and confess and say, I messed up again, but here we are together saying, Jesus, please change me to be like you. I wanna encourage you, if you feel like, yeah, I, I want that life with Jesus, come up and tell someone, and we just wanna pray with you and help get you connected with resources and people. So those are the three things. Peace for those who need it, freedom for those who need it, and good news for those who need it. Can we stand up? Um, as the worship band comes up, I'm just gonna do slightly, something slightly unorthodox. Um, Just If everybody can just close their eyes for a second, just out of respect. I'm not going to do anything weird Where I ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. I'm not going to do the American thing. Um, But I am going to say this. Give yourself a moment to let the Spirit move on your heart personally. You may think you don't need peace, and the Spirit's like, you do, and I have it for you. You may think you don't need freedom, and the Spirit might be tapping you on the shoulder saying, you do, and I have it for you. You may think you don't need good news, and the Spirit may be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I do. I'm just gonna pray that that process would start to work in your heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and start to stir in hearts where people are so anxious that they think that no peace is there for them, that you would start to whisper to them that peace is here. When people are in so much bondage, where they feel like there's no freedom, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would start to whisper freedom into their ear, that they would come and get prayer and get release. Where people think the good news is not for them, that Spirit, you would whisper into their ear that it is for all, and especially those who think they've got no place. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would start to work in hearts and minds right now, that you'd stir people up and you would give them boldness and confidence to come get prayer, that they would be weak and vulnerable to say, I need someone to pray for me, because where you are weak, then I am strong, is what God says. He says, where you are weak, I am strong. That He has that for you today.